While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. strong feelings about america you want to talk about america happy birthday america happy birthday to america it's july 5th <laughs> the day after america's birthday america is just, just it's is 155 in the afternoon america is just now rolling out of bed hungover reaching for that leftover dominoes Taking a little hair of the dog, the Domino's dog. <laughs> the hairy Domino dog. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you have been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Andrew, would you say that you are feeling like Amer- an American today? And by an American, I mean hungover? I wouldn't not say that. <laughs> cool. Okay. What's your favorite type of firework, Andrew? Um, My favorite type of firework is the one... That like goes off, but then it goes up a little more and then goes off again. Ooh, those are nice. Those are good. And also like the little white ones that aren't very big, but they make a big noise. I love the ones that make a big noise. Yeah. The ones that are like a giant just punched you in the chest. (laughs) What's your favorite kind of firework? I think that's one of them. I also really like the ones where they spread out and then all of the individual pieces like spread again oh that the, you know, yeah those are good i like those we saw ones yesterday that i never seen before where they spread out and they fell really slow and really long like they looked like jellyfish that were just like sinking out of the sky oh i think i've seen those yeah yeah you gotta keep up with the advancements in fireworks technology or you're just gonna be <laughs> you're not gonna know what you're looking at i do i, I like the crackly ones too mm. the ones that you know, they go off and then they sparkle, crackle for a little bit after that. Do they pop? Kind of. The ones that just shoot Rice Krispies in the air. Yeah. Those are my favorite. Rice Krispie fireworks. Delicious. <laughs> this is a sh- this is a show about books. Um, I guess we haven't, we haven't given our whole spiel in a while, so let's do that. Um, every week, one of us picks a book and then reads it and then explains it to the other one. And the person who hasn't read the book serves as a kind of listener surrogate. That's and correct. That's Yeah, and then we talk about it, and then we make a couple jokes, and then we uh, take the money all the way to the bank. Andrew, I wanted to congratulate you on knowing how our show works. You did a good job. Thanks. I, I've worked on that for a while last night, and <laughs> I'm glad that it went off so well. Craig, you read a book this week. What did you I read? I did. I read To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, uh, published in 1927. I'm going to say that right now because otherwise I'm going to forget. Uh, so I decided to say it right now. So why are we reading this old book? Like newer books have come out since then. Isn't this book old news? I thought you said you knew how the show worked. Isn't I'm I'm telling you <laughs> to tell me why this book is worth reading. Well, get- okay. I thought you were just being annoying. Um, I mean, I'm doing that too, but. (laughs) Uh, This book is a hallmark or has some hallmarks of 
modernism, which is we've talked about before on the show, but I think Wolf occupies a particular strand of it that it is worth talking about before we even get to her. So I made a couple notes about modernism. Talk to me about modernism. Here's what I know about it is that um, it rejected realism and um, it was very, I don't know, like in art and in writing and and even like philosophy and and stuff, it, it rejected old stuff in favor of new stuff which seems pretty self-evident i guess but it <laughs> I'm was very start it was a very movement where all we do is accept what came before yeah. it's called acceptism <laughs> get on tra- board the traditionalism movement <laughs> so yeah what's interesting then in the reading that i was doing is modernism usually it encompasses a whole bunch of art forms that you might already be familiar with and i think it's worth noting that neither andrew or i are like were English majors or did any sort of doctoral theses on the many works that we talk about on this show. No, we certainly so didn't. Our our job is to like stick our foot in the water and then kind of report back and maybe tell you whether or not you want to go for a dive. Yeah, right? we're just a couple of chuckleheads. Like, <laughs> go back to school if you want, professor. <laughs> or listen to our episode on don't go back to school, which is a thing that we've talked about before. Uh-huh. Um, but modernism, like you said, Andrew, it's rejecting what came before, but specifically with an eye towards finding new art forms that can properly represent the modern world. And this is like a turn of the 20th century thing that in the reading I was doing today was a good reminder that some of it started before World War One, but then World War One kind of exacerbated it. Like you have folks in the 1900s, like early, early 1900s, like 19 aughts, which is not a phrase anyone's ever said, and <laughs> uh, who are just experimenting with form. There's a, there's a real awareness of form happening. Across. Right, and, and, and the the movement, or like people, people working within the movement, they're like self-conscious of what came before in a way that makes them deliberately try out new stuff, like to seek yes. it out instead of just letting it happen, which I think is worth noting. Precisely. Uh, and then World War One comes along, and there's a, you know, an even greater dissatisfaction with what came before because what came before d- cannot accurately portray what just happened in the trenches, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Uh, so some of the authors that we've talked about on the show that can fit into modernism include Pirandello, O'Neill, Borges, Beckett, Nabokov, Kafka. Uh, I think there might be one or two <laughs> others, but. <laughs> And uh, as well as folks like Proust and D.H. Lawrence and Brecht and Gertrude Stein, Hilda Doolittle, who I've never heard of before, but we should probably learn about, uh, and Dylan Thomas are just a few. So I wanted to kind of rant that a little bit so people kind of sure, knew yeah. where we were starting. Right. And then Wolf specifically was part of this this group of people called the Bloomsbury Group, mm-hmm. um, group of writers, intellectuals, philosophers, and artists. So uh, John Maynard Keynes was one of them. E.M. Forster was one of them. And uh, Lytton Strachey was, was one of them. And Lytton Strachey, have you looked up pictures of his beard? Because it is <laughs> it is a beard among beards. No, I you could like you find... hang it out a window and people could climb up it to get to like the second floor. Who's like... the while you find the image for me, who's the president who had a beard that looked like the dinosaur that spit acid all over Newman from Seinfeld in Jurassic Park one? I don't know. That's a that's a heady mix of references that you just made. Whoa, there. his beard is insane. Look at him. Oh man. And he also has kind of 
goblin fingers, but I think that's <laughs> that's a modernist painting of his yeah. fingers. <laughs> uh, so we'll we'll be sure to put that up on social media so people know what the heck we're talking about. If anybody can, uh, now I don't want to look it up. If anybody can tell me which president has a beard like the acid spitting dinosaur, uh, please write in and tell us who it is. Was it Hayes? <sighs> he had a beard. Was it Garfield? I don't know. We're wasting precious time. <laughs> You're wasting precious time. I'm trying to get something done over here. Not uh, that many bearded presidents. No. Surprised. It's usually because it looks like they have something to hide. <laughs> yeah, what do you got under that mustache, Chester A. Arthur? <laughs> No wonder, just just, no wonder he's just a one-term president. An, an allegiance to the British king, perhaps? <laughs> uh, one of the names from modernism that I had no idea about that I think is relevant to this book in particular is a French philosopher named Henri Bergson, who was responding to Immanuel Kant and a couple other folks. He was trumpeting this idea of immediate experience and intuition being more significant than rationalism and science what for when understanding like an individual's reality so kind of building on stuff like freud and Jung and saying that how we experience reality it's not it, science is not relevant to like how a, an actual human experiences the world okay in that time can bend as you know kind of what we understand now about how perception and the way that memories are made can like change our perceptions of time. He was talking about that from a philosophical standpoint, if that makes sense. Sure. And that becomes hugely important in this book in particular and the rest of Wolf's stream of consciousness writing as she will dive headlong into a character's head for pages at a time. And when the reader comes back out, it's maybe been a few minutes and the next line of dialogue gets said. <laughs> okay. If that makes sense. Okay. Uh, so Wolf herself, uh, she was born in 1882. She died in 1941. She was the granddaughter of Thackeray. It's an English author who wrote Vanity Fair. It's like that's his big book. Um, I don't know. Every time I look up who Virginia Woolf is, it says she's a granddaughter of Thackeray. And I'm like, I don't know who that is. So All right. here we go. All right. Uh, her parents were Julia and Leslie Stephen, and they each had kids from prior marriages when they got together so there were a total of eight uh steven kids in this household including mm -hmm. virginia wolf mm -hmm. and she was the second youngest i believe and she never went to school um her mother died when she was when she was 13 and she had a bit of a nervous breakdown it seems and then had another one later when her father died in 1904 and that one was a bit worse. I think she was actually institutionalized after that one. Um, but yeah, she she suffered from what would probably now be called bipolar disorder. Yeah. And um, when she died in 1941, it was because she had drowned herself. So um, yeah, suffered from mental illness throughout her life, I guess. And yeah, not, doesn't sound like a fun thing to have to do. No, and it's it's tough because... Some of the recent scholarships has shown light on whether or not uh, her mental illness was the result of or exacerbated by uh, abuse 
from her brothers. And there's, you know, I, I don't think that that was a thing that was talked about as much in her time sure. or, you know, while she was still alive. I think there's one essay of hers that she references it, but... Um, so that's like a n- newer scholarly bent. And a lot of the actual scholarship on her, other than just people reading her books, didn't really start until the 70s when feminist criticism really took off. So the, like the bigger biographies don't start coming out until then. Right. Um, what else about this book? This book, book is... Or, or Virginia Woolf? Well, about, I think what's... I, the reason I said the book is because... There's a lot of her interwoven into this book. Right. Yeah. I was I was reading a little bit and um her family spent summers in the Tolland house at Portminster Bay, mm-hmm. I think is the is the name of it. And um St. Ives, yeah. Yeah. To the to the lighthouse um draws a lot from those experiences, I guess. Yeah, she spent every summer there until her mom died in eighteen ninety five. And the family, the Ramses in the book spend every summer on the island of sky until the mother passes so uh similar like eight kids like her family um and i'm gonna find the quote uh until she wrote to the lighthouse wolf says the presence of my mother obsessed me i could hear her voice see her imagine what she would do or say as i went about my day's doings she was one of the invisible presences who after all play uh, who, after all, play so important a part in every life. Uh, so, yeah, as the kind of the root of what Wolf was dealing with throughout her life, it seems like the loss of her mother was, you know, a formulative experience that kind of kicked this book into high gear, and it's probably why it's her most well-regarded work. Okay. I think it kind of crystallized probably what the book is. Yeah. Is there anything about else about wolf that you wanted to touch on um just that she she married leonard wolf in 1912 he was also a member of this bloomsbury group that she was part of and then um she had a sexual relationship with vita sackville west great name which i can only think of the sackville bagginses from from the lord of the rings um and uh orlando i think is the book that she wrote about that particular relationship but yeah, it was it was not the Bloomsbury group had a very uh I guess progressive view of sex and so it wasn't like a problem for her marriage that they did this, I don't think. Um Lytton Strakey in particular, I think, has has written a lot of letters that that go way into his view on views on sex that that are interesting reading. We're not gonna talk about them on this show because the, the show's <laughs> not about him or about sex but <laughs> but yeah that's there's a little that's a little homework for you guys uh and other you know major work by virginia wolf that you know came out when she started writing earnestly in the 19 teens and the 1920s they started like their own press called hogarth press or hogarth's press excuse me um after they bought their own printing press and that was the thing that she was kind of occupying herself with okay uh her major works in, at that time include jacob's room uh mrs dalloway to the lighthouse and the waves uh those are like the those latter three are like the big trilogy of hers um but jacob's room is regarded as the first of her you know experimental novels mm-hmm. um she'd written two other novels before then that are kind of largely 
viewed as more conventional um, and not of the, the the same voice that for for which she became famous. Okay. So, all right. So, tell me more about to the lighthouse. Unless you have any last stuff about Wolf that you wanted to hit on. No, I don't think so. Okay, great. What's the book? Uh, What's the book? What's the deal with this book? So, the deal with this book is <laughs> that there isn't really a plot. Okay. So get ready for one of these discussions. Great. <laughs> Buckle That's up. That's good. Uh, it's about this family called the Ramses. Mrs. Ramsey and Mr. Ramsey, they have this house uh, on the island of Skye where they spend their summers. They have eight kids. The ones you really need to worry about are James and Prue and Camilla. Uh, the other ones kind of run around. Jasper likes to shoot birds like he exists. There's, you know, <laughs> there's a couple others, but largely those are the ones you need to worry about. Yeah, what what I didn't know before I started researching this book is that it was uh, the inspiration for the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole, there's actually the one plot driven chapter is called Martha, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha, Martha. Mm-hmm. They changed it to Marsha for the Brady Bunch. Right, I know, and and it wasn't it wasn't a cricket ball that got thrown in her face. <laughs> it was a football. Are cricket balls a thing? Did I <laughs> cricket balls? Are... Did I square the circle on that one? She just hit her in the face with a wicket. That's what happened. <laughs> it's a sticky wicket. That's also where that phrase comes from. Uh-huh. It's stuck in her face. The more you know. Ba-da-ba-ba. Great. Okay. So the book opens. Mrs. Ramsey is telling her six-year-old son, James, that they will probably go to the lighthouse tomorrow. And... She, you know, talks about how much this means is going to mean to him, like, in her head. This is not, like, she doesn't, like, go on a big speech to him or anything. She's just like, all right, great, we're going to go to the lighthouse tomorrow. And then, as long as it's fine, she says, referring to the weather, of course. And then, on the next page, Mr. Ramsey says, but it won't be fine. How does he know? Is he the weatherman? No, but he just doesn't think it's going to work out. Okay. And this single event, like, kicks off a hundred pages of feelings for <laughs> everyone involved. Now, other things sort of happen and are alluded to happening, but this is, it's, this singular event is representative, I think, of everyone's feelings about each other. How about that? Okay. Explain more to me about what that means. So, uh, the next, I'll give you a little quote about James, because... So, Mr. Ramsey says, but it won't be fine. Had there been an axe handy or a poker, any weapon that would have gashed a hole in his father's breast and killed him there and then, James would have seized it. Such were, <laughs> such were the extremes of emotion that Mr. Ramsey excited in his children's breast by his mere presence, standing as now lean as a knife, narrow as the blade of one, grinning sarcastically, not only with the pleasure of disillusioning his son and casting ridicule upon his wife, who was 10,000 times better in every way than he was, James thought, Jeez. but also with some secret conceit at his own accuracy of judgment what he said was true it was always true he was incapable of untruth and that's only the second page of the book so already the six-year-old son is having some really strong feelings about his father i mean i think that's you know that's that's true to life because who among us hasn't been told that they can't go to chuck e cheese (laughs) by their dad and they just want to grab a poker and just end it all (laughs) i hate you i want 
Hawaiian pizza. No, you can't. You're dead to me. That's like every seven-year-old ever. Yep. Uh, except no seven-year-old likes Hawaiian-style pizza. They yeah, no, that was. I mean, nobody, nobody yet. likes Hawaiian-style pizza. So, <laughs> uh, so this this singular episode becomes uh, what Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey deal with for the rest of the day. So Mrs. Ramsey is posing for a painting by Lily Bresco with her son James. And so she's going to spend the rest of the day just like sitting there while James colors and she reads to him because she can't move because she's getting, you know, like it's not just a picture. She's not right. like taking a selfie. Yeah. You know? no, I, I, I don't understand how it works. You understand how portraits work? Yeah. Okay, good. I wasn't it's, sure. It's generally slower than cameras. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Uh, and Lily Bresco is, I believe she's in her late 20s, early 30s, and she is trying to make it as an artist. She is not married. Um, she doesn't seem to have any intentions of doing so, even though she does, you know, remark upon other men that are in the house. Um, and she, we spend some time with her as she gets to know a friend of the Ramseys, William Banks, who's also kind of crashing at their house for okay. a little while. Uh, other folks in the house include Charles Tansley, who's a young scholar uh, who looks up to Mr. Ramsey, but uh, has some, let's say, uh, well, not acron- not anachronistic, but some non-progressive views of what women can and can't do. Okay. Uh, he kind of gets in Lily's head as, as one who said that women can neither paint nor write. So whenever Lily starts doubting her own work, she is reminded of Charles Tansley. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in the house are Augustus Carmichael, who's this old poet man. And then around are Paul Rayleigh and Minta Doyle, who are two acquaintances of Mrs. Ramsey that she's trying to get together and get engaged. Uh, so this house is just chock-a-block with folks. <laughs> uh, just kind of milling around. And most of what the book is for about 120 pages is just this day. And being in these people's heads as they have really slight, small interactions with each other that all mean the world to them, okay. basically. Um well, because this is what you did. Like, there yeah. wasn't the internet. Nobody invented video, <laughs> video games yet. I th- yeah, it's one of those things. Where, certainly, as reading this book, um, we've talked. We talk almost every week about you. You encounter something that is an early iteration of a style or a genre or a plot point. To the where, if you read it today, you'd be like, maybe that's a little cliche, but what will happen in this book, like I just kind of showed you is someone says something for a page and a half. There's a paragraph about how they feel about it and how they feel about the other people in the room. Okay. And then someone responds and then there's another page and a half of what's going on in that person's brain. And I, it's good writing, like it's moving writing and I want to find a couple other passages in just a second, but that's the like action of the book. It's not like there are no chase scenes. (laughs) (laughs) there's no you know what i mean right that makes sense yeah there's no there's no like evil oil baron who's trying to sell the lighthouse and they have to put on like one more big show to (laughs) to save the rec center yeah (laughs) right (laughs) 
you just you get really close into these characters and you know everything that they are thinking and everything that they ate for lunch earlier that day and just everything about them that's is that basically it that's basically it okay uh so are these characters that you want to be this close to or does that does that matter that much yeah i think you do they they're charming in their way uh mr ramsey is a bit of a blowhard when he's interacting with other people but he is the quintessential like bully who's super insecure about himself Mm -hmm. he has he's a scholar he's published some books and he's worried that the greatest work is behind him and that he won't you know get any further as a seems to be a philosopher uh kind of thinks about the world excuse me and there's this really interesting passage when we first really get inside his head for a long period of time where he is talking about uh, his mind. And what does he say? It was a splendid mind, for if thought is like the keyboard of a piano divided into so many notes, or like the alphabet is ranged in 26 letters all in order, then his splendid mind had no sort of difficulty in running over those letters one by one, firmly and accurately, until it had reached, say, the letter Q. He had reached Q. Very few people in the whole world of England had ever reached Q. And then he kind of stops for a little while and talk, you know, thinks briefly about his family. And then he goes right back in and he goes, but after Q, what comes next? After Q, there are a number of letters, the last of which is scarcely visible to mortal eyes, but glimmers red in the distance. Z is only reached once by one man in a generation. Still, if he could reach R, it would be something. Mm-hmm. So, and then he goes on for another page about whether or not he will ever make it to R. Uh, and it's not, you know, this is not a literal discussion of what he's studying. He knows the alphabet. Uh, but No, I, I assume that he was not actually literally talking about the alphabet because <laughs> that seems like either people in this era were just really bad at the alphabet or maybe, uh-huh. or maybe he's not as smart as he thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's possible. But he's concerned about leaving a legacy. He's concerned about who's reading his books and who will continue to read his books. They talk later over dinner about, you know, whether or not people will still care about Shakespeare in two to three hundred years or, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not people will still read certain novels, but, you know, by other authors. And he's worried that he will not have this outsized legacy. Yeah. Uh, and Mrs. Ramsey, on the other hand, is not concerned about her legacy. She's concerned with the family unit working as a whole. And then by extension, kind of creating further family units. She seems to want accord among people. Okay. Uh, and is constantly frustrated by Mr. Ramsey's own private you know individual issues and how it affects the family uh but then is also more actively looking outwards towards say willie and mr banks or as i said paul and minta to kind of create these other marriages that kind of beget more marriages right? yeah right um, these kind of harmonious family units you look you... no just isn't that isn't that its own kind of like legacy building kind of thing mm. That's fair. I mean, maybe it's a different, uh, different side of the same coin. It well, there's an affirmation aspect to it that seems similar. She, 
she wants to create more things like the one that she has, I think perhaps you could argue to make her feel better about the thing that she has. Sure. Because there are certainly times where they in this book where both her and Mr. Ramsey talk about it not working. Yeah, like maybe if maybe if other people want it and have it, then it validates her wanting it and having it. Precisely. Precisely. Um, and it all turns on like individual moments. I want it, to... It's one of those things where it could... Every single moment could be either something really wonderful or really hurtful, okay. if that makes sense. Sure. So I just want to sh- redo another passage of them interacting with one another. This is Mr. Ramsey. He turned and saw her. She was lovely, lovelier now than ever he thought, but he could not speak to her. He could not interrupt her. He wanted urgently to speak to her now that James was gone and she was alone at last, but he resolved no, he would not interrupt her. She was aloof from him now in her beauty, in her sadness. He would let her be, and he passed her without a word, though it hurt him that she should look so distant and he could not reach her. He could do nothing to help her. And again, he would have passed her without a word had she not, at that very moment, given him of her own free will what she knew he would never ask, and called to him, and taken the green shawl off the picture frame, and gone to him, for he wished she knew to protect her. And it's, the book is just, as the, as the house is chock-a-block with people, the book is chock-a-block with like tiny moments of care or hurt that get really delicate treatment. <laughs> like that you know sure. where it's like i don't want to talk to her because it's going to interrupt her very existence but by not talking to her i am hurting mine and what do i do oh god my mind never ends y'all are overthinking it just a little <laughs> bit i think uh so we'll, i'll kind of move through the rest of the book a little quicker now that i've given you a sense of how it works does that make yeah, sense sure yeah uh the end of the first passage starts with this dinner party where Mr. Ramsey flips out because Augustus wants a second helping of soup. (laughs) And by flip out, I mean, (laughs) by flip out, this is what I mean. Mrs. Ramsey looks at him like she's thinking real positively of him and she looks over and he's scowling and immediately she knows what he's scowling about and she gets real pissed that he's scowling about this dude who asked for more soup. And then he like snaps at the kids to light more candles and eventually dinner recovers, but oh man, it's the worst. Came close for a second there. <laughs> How dare you ask for more soup? The soup fiasco of nineteen twelve <laughs> or whenever this is. Uh and then that passage ends with the two of them together and they're reading in their bedroom, and he is looking at her and she knows that what he wants is for her to say that she loves him for once. And this is kind of built up over the first whole third of the book. And she won't. She won't say it. What instead she says is that she'll concede that they prob- that he's probably right about the weather. They won't go to the lighthouse tomorrow. <laughs> and and it literally, it's like in that moment, she has told him in her way that she loves him and he knows that she does. Like this, it's this wonderful like what? celebration for both of them emotionally, but also in this weird way, she's like staking out her claim. Like, I won't just give you what you want. I will concede a thing to you. She doesn't, The Wolf says that Mrs. Ramsey doesn't make proclamations like that so easily of love. So if you got this down to the dialogue and the action, 
it would be like five pages long, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> it wouldn't it be would, very much. It's not a very uh, action-packed book. So then there's a whole middle chapter that is called Time Passes. And it is just wind and light and age affecting the house that has been empty for 10 years because Mrs. Ramsey passed. Not unlike Wolf's mother. Okay. Uh and you don't even encounter the characters for pages at a time. It kind of does this Our Town thing. I don't know if you've... Have you read Our Town, it's, Andrew? I've, I've seen it a couple times, but it's been a while. So let, um, let, lay it down for me. The, the analog that I have is that in kind of one of the opening speeches, the stage manager mentions a character and then really briefly tells you that in a few years that character's just going to die in the war and then moves on with whatever the stage manager is talking about. And it's not really important to the rest of the play. It's just one it's of not, those little foreshadowing things. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a plot point. It's just here's what happens in the course of human existence. So the way that this whole chapter is structured is just wind. And like as I said, like it's personified wind kind of like wearing down the house. And doors are, you know, shuddering and dirt is collecting. And then in a bracket, it just says... Uh, Mrs. Ramsey passed, essentially. Like, talks, oh, Mrs. Ramsey's dead now. Oh, this character's dead now. Oh, this character's dead now. And all of these little, like, drops of 10 years of things that happen to people are condensed with regard, you know, in relation to the the text about the house. Right. Uh, And then in the third chapter, it's been 10 years, and Lily Bresco, the painter, uh, Augustus, the guy who wanted more soup, and Mr. Ramsey and the, some of the kids who are left come back to visit the house. And Poor Augustus. Fun. Like, that's, his, that's just his thing now. He's a soup guy. <laughs> he asked for more soup one time, and that's his whole life now. Well, the, <laughs> I'm giving him a short shrift. Uh, Lily talks for a while about how after World War I, there was a renewed en- interest in poetry, and so he did pretty well for himself. So he's doing okay, except he spends the whole last part of the book just asleep, uh, probably from too much soup, I will infer. Yeah, yeah. and I assume that he, his poems, his collected works, are a bunch of missives about soup. Uh-huh. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then the last third of the book is Lily desperately trying to finish her painting. Uh, and by desperately, I mean she's kind of wrestling with the ghost of Mrs. Ramsey, both metaphorically and for a brief second, almost literally, like not a real (laughs) ghost, but she looks in a window and kind of thinks she sees her as she's thinking really deeply about Mrs. Ramsey's legacy on the whole family and the outsize effect that she's had on Lily's life. Uh, Lily doesn't marry. She doesn't end up marrying, even though it's been 10 years and she's tried to stake her claim as an artist. Uh, but she's worried about what her legacy will be and you know what will people do with her paintings like she's afraid that they're just going to get boarded up and put in attics and you know rolled up and put away uh while this is going on Cam, Camilla, uh James, two of the kids and Mr. Ramsey finally decide to go to the lighthouse. They almost don't make it. The kids are running late. Uh but they decide to go. They're in a boat with some fishermen and James hates his father. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not a lot has happened plot wise to tell you why it's just his father's distance his father's ego it's you know his own worry who knows what you know james blames him for 
everything, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, Camilla is desperately trying to think better of him, but she and James have a connection that kind of repeats itself a couple times where they both look at their father and then kind of share like a wordless thought about him. Uh, and they end up making it. They make it, finally. Yay. Uh, and the big like momentous catharsis for them is that uh, Mr. Ramsey says that James did a good job steering them to the lighthouse. And this is like the first time in the entirety of human existence that he has praised his son. <laughs> it's it's that kind of thing where it's like this in the context of the book that doesn't feel that doesn't warrant the the laugh, you know? Like okay. I I know saying it it warrants the laugh and you can uh-huh. kind of think about it that way, but I think Wolf is exploring to what extent these, you know, how much of ourselves are shaped by these little gestures that have outsized import yeah um and then at the end of the book after lily kind of thinks she's seen them reach the lighthouse she completes her painting uh is able to do so by realizing that so what if you know people put it away she was she had her vision she saw her work and she created it Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what happens in the book so like i say like not a lot a lot of right, time spent obviously. in people's heads. There's like a whole little section where Paul and Minta are on the beach. It's ostensibly when he proposes to her, though you never see that moment. Uh, and she like loses a brooch or something and everyone's like, what happened? That's really weird. <laughs> uh, and then there's like, a you know, some time with Lily and Mr. Banks, but it, there's like nothing momentous occurs. If so, I mean, sense. what's the what's the driving force of the book is it just this like really intense little character study is it about how the most like insignificant the smallest least memorable things like things that that one person might totally pass by and never think about again like totally can shape other people's lives like yeah, and about it's that it's the latter one I think the most, and and how your own personal private wants kind of shape the world around you. Like I read that passage about Mr. Ramsey's desire to leave a mark on the world, and that kind of comes back a number of times, and it's paralleled with Lily's desire to complete this painting, um, and the word want I notice gets used throughout the entire book and it's this inability to communicate it to other people for fear of it by naming it, then it loses its power and can be messed up and broken even more so than you think it is. Sure. Um, I don't know that I have like a real clear personal analog to, to what that is, but I certainly identify with the, you know, looking at a person and, and projecting a whole like history of your memory on them. That's yeah, really right. that's really what the book is made out of. It's it's people looking at other folks that are related to them or have a relationship with them and working through all of your feelings about why they are the way they are and why you treat them the way you treat them and, and what you wish they would give you, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um kind of. I mean <laughs> Um it's yeah, I don't know I don't I don't really know. Like it's I don't I'm not sure where to take this. No, that's cuz it that's, sounds like it sounds like reading the book is a lot of the point like the actual 
reading of the of the words and the way they're put together is like part of the part of the experience it's one that you can't fully convey to me just in telling me what happens and and what you know how how wolf makes whatever points that it is she's trying to make yeah uh i'll give you a passage that maybe you can identify with andrew how about that okay do that the it's about the pain of creating and how difficult it is because i think that you don't have to tell me (laughs) about the pain of creating stuff uh lily is you know very much an analog for wolf it seems throughout the book even though wolf herself was married and i want to get to the book's potential implications for what marriage is in just a second but uh wolf studied painting she herself is an artist so i think part of lily's struggle is is her struggle Uh, this is lily in, in the third section of the book where to begin that was the question at what at what point to make the first mark one line placed on the canvas committed her to innumerable risks to frequent and irrevocable decisions and all that and all that in idea seemed simple became became in practice immediately complex excuse me as the waves shape themselves symmetrically from the cliff top but to the swimmer among them are divided by steep gulfs and foaming crests still the risk must be run the mark made it's that like i'm staring at a blank canvas what do i do because whatever i do starts me down a path that i can't undo yeah i mean the the can't undo thing is is less less of a thing i think in the era of like computers and the internet where like pretty much nothing is permanent at least least while you're in the process of creating something now once it's out Mm -hmm. there it's it becomes difficult to really take anything back yeah we've talked we talked about that on our bad feminist episode right the like yeah once you start making a thing or making a thing of yourself you can't undo that certainly i think there's a metaphorical reading of of that passage that is not just about the act of creation like from an artistic point of view but of the self right yeah like you only have a limited amount of time not to get morbid about it or anything (laughs) but it and it also seems like I mean that that also ties it like all a lot of what these people are worrying about all goes back to leaving something behind like most explicitly I guess in Mr. Ramsey's case mm-hmm. but Mrs. Ramsey wants you know wants her family to keep making families you know she uh Lily uh yep. wants to make that painting and and you know in making a painting leaving behind something that's tangible and like semi-permanent or at least permanent enough to outlast her and validate her own life choices. Yeah, I think we right. talked we talked about that earlier with regards to Mrs. Ramsey, uh, but Lily's decision or you know just refusal to to get married and kind of devote herself to that life. In the context of the book, this painting becomes whether or not that that works for her. You know, uh, and so the thing about marriage, I was reading a little bit about you know Wolf. Obviously, like I said before has seen a lot of feminist uh, readings of her work uh, being a woman that was writing at, at all and then writing at this time when that was you know beginning to be explored and people were beginning to write about the discrepancies between genders right mm-hmm. yeah and there's there's a reading of this book uh, where every this kind of marriage that marriages that mrs. Ramsey tries to beget all don't work out. <laughs> uh and 
Lily is the is the not the ideal, but just a version of feminism that that you know, trumpets you know f- female individualism because Mrs. Ramsey dies at a young age, you know, youngish. She had eight kids, but she doesn't live to her old age. Right. And Prue, her daughter, dies in childbirth, I believe. And then after, you know, getting married. And then Minta, who's the woman that she sets up with that guy, Paul, uh, their marriage doesn't go so well and he ends up leaving her for someone else. So, like, the characters that go that go into this domestic role do not fare well by the, you know, in the context of the book. Yeah. And Lily is struggling against that. And, sim- you know, she's also struggling against the specter of Mrs. Ramsey on her own life and how, you know, in the context of this book, this woman defined what she did. You know, it's whether or not she's going to complete this painting of her and her son and how her own beauty and her own influence over the rest of the people in this house uh, affected Lily's life. So there's, I don't know, there's something to that reading, I think, that is... Uh, useful in thinking about Wolf. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, None in particular. I mean, because she didn't have kids, right? Wolf didn't? I do not believe she did, no. Um, I don't know. And and, and even though she was married, like obviously the, the people in this... Um, What's the name of the group? Bloomdale, Bloomington, Bloom the Bloomsburg, the Bloomsburg group, the Bloomington group, the Blue Man group. <laughs> yeah, um, they they didn't put a lot of stock in like that that traditional institution, I guess, which seems in keeping with with the tenets of modernism. I'm just kind of casting in the dark and connecting. Like, you know how when you're putting a puzzle together and you're sure that pieces must fit because they like have the same patterns in them or something. Yeah. And then you try to make them fit together and they don't quite, but then you decide <laughs> you're going to come back to them later. Like that's pretty much where I am right now. That's fine. I I think we can start to wind down because as I was reading this book, I was thinking there's, there's no way I'm going to get everything in this book on the show. We're usually bad at that. And I think I'm going to be worse this time mm-hmm. because it is so dense. Have you read Faulkner, Andrew? Um, not recently, no. I mean, I, I know um, his deal is like long and broken sentences and it can be very, it can be hard to keep track of, I guess. I, I feel like I had the similar experience reading Wolf. Um, that's my, that was my first thought as I was kind of even 30 pages, pages in going, okay. It's just really heavy. It's not, yeah, it's not like dense linguistically, but she'll certainly hang out in someone's head for a good long time and let them get interrupted. Apparently, in her own diaries, Wolf thought about her own thinking a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, as an intelligent person who had suffered breakdowns and been institutionalized, I imagine would. Like, she would try to understand what was happening and had, had happened to her. Mm-hmm. So I think her sense of how human thought flows is really interesting. And that comes across in some of the passages I read today. Uh but this book kind of sends you into a rhythm. It's not the like, oh, I've been transported to a fantasy land experience where like you get inside of a work of sci-fi or a really engrossing work of fiction 
of any genre, I suppose, where it's like you're envisioning the place and yada, yada, yada. This is like your brain gets on a wavelength. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we, we've talked about that before is that it takes it ta- when you jump into a book like this, that's that's like written really in a really specific voice or if it's like older. And so we're not used to to thinking in patterns that the author was used to thinking in. like it, it you get there like you get on the same page eventually, but it takes some time. Yeah. And what makes this book extra difficult and rewarding is that she herself is playing with what that syntax is mm-hmm. like she's not just working in a specific voice that is just older than the one we think in she is actively exploring how people think and how those thoughts come across on the page right yeah um and then I'd, i just want to give you a struck me funny that i think okay. i've talked about briefly on the show before this is mr banks thinking about the family uh the ramses the ramses were not rent were not rich and it was a wonder how they managed to contrive it at all. Eight children to feed eight children on philosophy. Uh, and then what he goes, he goes down. There was education now to be considered, let alone the daily wear and tear of shoes and stockings with which those great fellows, all well-grown, angular, ruthless youngsters, must require. Andrew, does this sound at all like the concern I've had that the thing that freaks me out about kids is that they need new shoes every other day? Virginia Woolf gets me, okay? She and I are simpatico. I really think that you should just, like, little, just take some twine. (laughs) Just bags? Yeah, just little, just (laughs) tie little grocery bags around their feet. You double bag them. Both for protection and for freshness. Well, and then you could just like, you get bags of any size, really. Well, see, what they should actually do is they shouldn't, they should make bags that look kind of like shoes that have like shoe patterns printed on them. So you're not just taking like Meyer bags uh-huh. and tying them to your, to your feet. They should look kind of like Air Jordans or something. <laughs> is it the bags? Yeah. <laughs> If you out there, listeners, have any ideas for dumb shoes, you should dumb write them shoes? in. That was the, I thought that was a pretty good idea. Don't steal that one. That's patent patent pending. If you have a way to help us market our bag shoe idea, <laughs> you can write in to overduepod at gmail.com. You can send things about to the lighthouse that I missed. Uh, to that email address or also to our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. Uh, everyone who reached out this past week, we had a, a double week with our bonus episode and uh, people were pretty vocal. So I want to thank Deborah, Michael, Colleen, Aaron, Christina, Ricky, Albie, Ali, Oswaldo, Alex, Jay, Jocko, Tony, Jonathan, Ronald, J Deep, uh, Lainey, Kara, Lindsay, and Monica all for reaching out this week on social media. We really appreciate it. Uh, and it's a great dopamine drip. Uh, throughout the week and andrew and i also kind of text each other excitedly whenever certain things happen about the show so (laughs) know that you are just as you are carrying us with you on like your buses or your you know car rides andrew and i are throughout the week kind of probably talking about you guys in a totally not creepy way andrew take this away so i (laughs) so i don't sound weird anymore (laughs) where you see one set of footprints in the sand that's where you guys carried us um 
If you go to OverduePodcast.com, you can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, all the places that you can subscribe to our show. If you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, do leave us a rating and or a review. We got a few this week, one from MobimbamFan, one from Scarlet1939, one from Maine Moxie, and one from Middle of Illinois. That's actually the name that's that's left. It's not the location, though it might also be the location. I don't know. Um, and... Also on that website, we have um, Amazon links to the books that we have read that we are going to read. If you want to read along or read ahead with us, or if you if we do a show and you really want to read more about the book that we talked about, um, click on those links and buy the book and we get a small cut of that. That's one way to support us. Another way is to go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash overduepod. Um, you can pledge a certain amount of money a month to support our hosting costs and equipment and and that kind of thing. Um, Your support has really helped us do some stuff that I never thought we'd be able to do. Um, And, and we are trying to put together a few things for the end of the year, like the, you know, the second half of 2015 that we think you guys will like. So we will, we will keep you posted on that as soon as we know enough to, to say about them. Andrew, what are you reading for next week? Uh, next week, I am reading "Till We Have Faces" by C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis, I've I've read the all the Narnia books, and that's about the extent of my exposure to him. Well, so. he has a whole other catalog that is not a. You know how like Aslan is sort of Jesus. Yes, he has a whole bunch of books that are like more explicitly <laughs> okay, dealing great. with Jesus. So, okay. I don't know if "Till We Have Faces" is one of them, but he is uh, more than just your average fantasy writer. How about that? All right. Sounds good. All right, everybody. We will be back next Monday. And until then, try to be happy.